God. If you have your Bible with you, uh, you can turn with me to John chapter 14, verse 27, whether on your phone app or a physical Bible that you have. just want to remind you that today, as we have seen with Sasha lighting the candle today, is the second Sunday of Advent. And the theme of this second Sunday of Advent is the subject of peace, which is a critical subject, especially right now, in a world that is suffering from fear, anxiety, and other problems due to this pandemic and the lockdowns that we're going through. Now, in order to understand what God has to say about peace, we're going to be flipping through a number of scriptures here, but let's begin actually with a reading of our primary text here. John chapter 14, verse 27. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Not let, your hearts, let not your hearts be troubled, and neither let them be afraid. You know, it's times in our lives when the storms seem to be raging, and you and I are racked with what seems like to be unspeakable grief and suffering and pain and inner turmoil in our hearts, that words like this come across to us as words of precious comfort from our Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, it's in times like this where we feel like all that we can do in life is to cry out to the Lord and we ask our God to come and walk on water and to calm the storms in our lives and to help us. You know, but the quest and the search for peace is not just a Christian pursuit. And I think that's important to understand. People in our world all seek not just happiness, but they look for peace as well, whether that's on an individual level or whether that's on a global level as well. Now, if you look at the attempts to broker a peace, we have quite a few examples in human history. For example, you look uh, with all the bloodshed of World War II, and what came out as a result of that as countries tried to attain a measure of world peace. You know, in 1945, they formed the United Nations with a number of countries sitting on the Security Council permanently in an attempt basically to broker peace with words before countries resorted to using weapons instead. And so by doing this, they hoped actually to bring about a sense of world peace. But the truth of the matter is that despite this worldwide effort, the 20th century still saw things like the Vietnam War, the Korean War, the difficulties with Iraq, and now the war on terror, and it's still, it goes on. I mean, despite the good the United Nations have done, it has not done anything ultimately to solve the problem of lasting world peace. You know, there's others, for example, who will look at this and say, well, the real issue is that peace is a socio-philosophical uh, problem. For example, if you look at an individual like Karl Marx, who advocated for his theories, he basically said that uh, when private property is abolished and people's material needs are met, then eventually what's going to happen is that people are all going to get along together with each other. And once they do that and they're all sort of equals, we should be able to have no problems. But if you know anything about the 20th century and what has happened with the communist experiment, you realize that the optimism that many of its proponents have had felt really has been sort of drowned in the incredibly large pool of innocent blood that has been spilled at the hands of Marxist and communist proponents. You know, still others will say that the right thing to do, perhaps, is to have a policy of a strong military, or that is the idea of peace that comes through strength.
Now, this kind of thinking also was um, popular, you know, not only in our, in our day, but also in, in sort of the millennia in the past. So, for example, you have uh, guys like American President Theodore Roosevelt, who had a famous diplomatic policy, and that was speak softly and carry a big stick. And the idea here is that if you have a large enough army to back you up, nobody is going to want to dare to fight you. And so, therefore, you have this uneasy sense of peace because, not because people are living in harmony, because everyone's afraid to fight. There's others, for example, who have argued to say, well, peace can be achieved through a democratic sort of peace uh, ideology. And that is the idea that democratic countries are generally richer, they have wealth, and they have more infrastructure and things to lose if they choose to actually go ahead and engage in warfare. So therefore, if we have more democracies in this world, they shouldn't fight with each other. But again, the 20th century has proved us wrong with this. Democratic countries do fight, although less, but they still do fight with each other. Now, even UN peacekeeping missions have problems as well. You know, David Lamb, who was the former UN rights investigator in Bosnia from 1999 to 2001, actually testified before a subcommittee of Congress about the problems that came along with UN peacekeeping. He explained that the sex trade, he says, in Bosnia largely exists because of the UN peacekeeping operation. In other words, what he noted was that the UN peacekeepers fueled the sex trade and even abused helpless children. Now, when we think about that, we look at that and we think, isn't that horrific? You know, even our best attempts to broker peace in this world are marred by evil. See, my point is this. Peace in this world, no matter how you look at it, is at most, it's fleeting, it's fragile, and it's at most partial. You know, everybody wants it. And when you don't have it, you're anxious and restless because you don't have it. And when you do have it, you're anxious and restless because you're worried about when you're going to lose it next. As one writer puts it, this is what peace is. Peace is that glorious moment in time when everybody stops and reloads. See, what this is saying is we all understand that peace in this world really is just temporary, and we're just waiting for the next round of ammunition to be unleashed in this world because we know that trouble is always around the corner. Now, if we try to achieve peace through drugs, recreation, family, career, entertainment, all these other things, you will ultimately never achieve it. And the reason we'll never achieve it is because until we treat the root issue of what causes a lack of peace, that is sin, sin that is our rebellion against God and us saying that we want to live our own lives how we want to live them and not bow in deference to our Lord and Savior who has made us and created us, we will always be restless until we find our purpose and our obedience in Him. Until we understand that we are sinners at heart and that we live for ourselves, we will never understand that the problem of peace is not a social problem, but truly a God-sin problem in our lives, and we'll never figure out how to fix it. That's why it's so important for us to understand the Scripture's teaching about the biblical nature of peace. Now, as we think about the text that we read earlier, about what Jesus had to say, I want you to remember and note that Jesus said something very unique about peace. He said, not as the world gives you do I give to you this peace. 
Now, the question for us is if we think about the nature of peace and we think about what Jesus has said, the question we need to ask is, what's the difference? What's the difference between Jesus' peace that he offers and the peace that the world has tried to broker and offer to us? Now, if you think about the context of this verse that we just read, the context is of Jesus on a Thursday night eating the last meal, basically, with his disciples. And after he's washed their feet and spoken to them and and told them that he is about to go away, his disciples, of course, understandably panic as a result of this. And so the Lord takes the time, actually, to speak words of comfort to them, words of truth that will help them through this next period. John chapter 14, verses 1 to 6, records some of the things that he has said, he said to them during the meal. The Bible says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, these are remarkable and incredible words. Essentially, what Jesus is saying is, I'm going away but I don't want you to worry about it. If you want to get to me, you actually can. Because as long as, as long as you know me, you know the way to get to me as well. Now, I think it's important for us to understand that nobody else can talk like this. Like if I were to get up and say, you want to know the way to get to my house? Well, then you just simply need to know me. Forget about Google Maps, know me. And you will look at me and say, that's useless when it comes to directions. What are you talking about in terms of you know the way to where you are as long as you know you? Now, Jesus speaking here is not trying to be, fool, is not trying to be clever or to give us something that's just odd and nonsensical. What Jesus is saying here is that, no, no, if you believe in me, you believe in what I'm going to do, you believe in what I came to do and also what I stand for and how faith alone in me can give you the forgiveness of sins and have a, give you a right relationship with God, then you actually know the right way to get to where I am going to be, that is at my Father's right hand. I am preparing a place for you there, and the only way to get there, to this place of lasting peace in heaven, is to come through me. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. I am the door. And so, don't worry really remarkable if you think about it. And look how he comforts his disciples. He says a number of things to them. He says to them that the Father will send you a helper. The Father will love you. He says, I won't leave you as well as orphans in this world. See, it's in the context of encouragement that Jesus gives these words, my peace I leave with you. And given how dire the circumstances are and how scared they are, this has got to be and to mean something completely different from whatever the world offers when it says, I give you peace. But what exactly does Jesus mean? We still need to answer that question. For that, I want to go through what peace is, starting with the Old Testament. 
You know, in the Old Testament, the word that we often translate as peace is the Hebrew word shalom. And it's used in a variety of different ways, shalom. For example, when Joshua's soldiers return from battle safely, they actually return in what is called shalom. When Moses tries to make a peace treaty with Sihon, the king of Heshbon, in the book of Deuteronomy, we are told that he speaks to them actually words of peace or shalom to make a treaty. The name, for example, Solomon, with its letters uh, S-L-M, the English equivalents of the Hebrew letters, are the same consonants that are found in the Hebrew word for peace, shalom, S-L-M, once again, implying that the name Solomon means something along the lines of that he's a man of peace or he's David's peace. Now, the point of this is that shalom or peace in the Old Testament is not just the absence of conflict, but also when it's used in this different way or in the context of relationship with God, it, what it implies is there is a type of peace or a wholeness that is intimately connected to the blessing of the Lord, and it's a state of wholeness. And let me show you where you see that in the Scriptures. Psalm 38 verse 8 says this, There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health or shalom in my bones because of my sin. So you see that? He says, there's no health or shalom in my bones. Why? Because sin actually destroys the peace or the shalom we have with God in our souls. Or Isaiah 57 verse 21 also supports this idea. There is no peace or shalom, says my God, for the wicked. So wickedness means no shalom. On the contrary, when people are living according to God's laws, they can actually have divine peace. Psalm 119 verse 65 says this, Great peace, or shalom, have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. In other words, what the psalmist is saying is that if you walk with God and you are faithful to Him, you will walk in shalom, and you will not stumble in the way that you live as all the crazy things happen to you in life, you will keep walking straight and you won't fall. Isaiah 59 verse 8 says this, The way of peace, or the way of shalom, they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one treads on them who knows peace. See, this is absolutely remarkable here because you're starting to get an idea that Shalom here is not just a present state or an absence of a conflict here, but it's a lifestyle, a way of shalom that is contrary to the way of the unjust, the wicked, and those who are crooked. See, this is why that Isaiah can actually say of those who follow God this in Isaiah 26 verse 3, you keep him in perfect peace or shalom, those whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So from this verse, how does peace or shalom come to you? Isaiah says here that if you fix your mind on God and you trust him in the midst of your difficult circumstances, this is the avenue by which God gives you this gift of shalom. In other words, you, God, Keep him in perfect peace or shalom, those who trust in you. So you can see very clearly here that this is a gift given by God to those who put their faith and their trust in him. 
So shalom in this context is a blessing from God Himself. So if I were to summarize sort of the Bible's teaching on this definition, sort of a shalom, we get a picture here of shalom or peace being something that cannot coexist with injustice or wickedness or any kind of sin. And shalom is a lifestyle of well-being that allows you actually to stand tall with the favor of God and not stumble in the storms of life. It is nothing short of a gift from God Himself. You see how different this is from the world's definition of peace. Like, imagine that somebody were to say, talking about the relationship that he has with his spouse, and says something, well, I had a wonderful evening last night with my wife. We didn't fight. You think about a statement like that, and you go, does that sound to you like a statement about a great marriage? No, you'd have to say at that point, do you usually fight in your marriage? Is that why you had one moment of levity or a moment of peace in your life? doesn't sound that great to me. And unfortunately, this is often the way that we define peace in this world, often in terms of negative things, a lack of conflict, a lack of war, the absence, you know, of uh, animosity that often doesn't last. But when we think about the biblical definition, the way that shalom is used in the Bible, we realize that true peace has a sense of wholeness to it. Wholeness, steadiness, and rightness actually in relationship to God, trust there. It's a statement, it's a lifestyle, not just a state for a particular time. See, you never describe a good marriage as being peaceful. See, that, that just sounds kind of weird. You're like, uh, it, it, is your marriage only peaceful? Like, is there something else going on there? See, but you can describe a good relationship with God as being in a state of shalom. Because it's not just about the absence of conflict, but a state of blessedness, connectedness, wholeness as well, walking in His favor. See, and you can use shalom in this way. And this is why shalom in the Old Testament, I think, is also used as a greeting. Like, for example, uh, they'll often say, Hashalom hata, or Hashalom hata, which means like uh, uh, good or well, uh, whole, or shalom. Is it with you? Is it going well with you? Are you well? Are you whole or are you shalom? Now, we as North Americans uh, often don't greet each other in this way with words of peace, but other cultures in our world actually do in the way that they speak. For example, if you look at Romanian Christians, they will say pace to each other, or which means peace as they greet each other as Christians. If you look, for instance, at uh, Farsi speakers or Arabs, they will say the word salam, right? which salam, which is, uh, means peace as well. It's a, it's a wish on the other person as well as a greeting. See, the question that we want to ask is, what's the difference between the greeting and the wish of shalom to another person compared to the gift of shalom that God actually gives? See, the difference, I think, comes as a result of the fact that when we speak words, we speak words in the hope that blessing will actually settle on a person. Whereas when God speaks words, He speaks words to people with the certainty that His words actually cause and bring about His intended effect. In other words, our human words are prospective and powerless, 
Whereas the words of God are effective and powerful. I'll give you an example of what this is like. Um, Think about it, Chinese New Year. Many of you who live here in the city of Vancouver will often hear Chinese people saying to each other, Gong Si Fa Cai, or like uh, Cantonese, Gong He Fa Cai, right? So they do this, right? You know, you, you hear this all the time. You know, you might even get your bus driver or people to say that to you. You know, for those of you who don't speak Chinese, let me just clarify for you that um, this phrase actually does not mean Happy New Year. The, the, the phrase Happy New Year in Mandarin Chinese is Xin Yan Kuai Le. The phrase Gong Xi Fa Tai actually means uh, literally congratulations and receive money, or basically, I hope you get rich. So, Chinese people love money so much that the way that they greet each other in the New Year's, they say, I hope you get incredibly rich and congratulations on this New Year. See, it's important to understand that because if I had a dollar, for every time somebody said those words to me as a child growing up until now, I guarantee you that I would be a millionaire by now. Do you know why I am not a millionaire today? The reason is because the word of man is prospective and not effective. In other words, people might wish me money and happiness and to have a certain level of peace in my life, yet people in this world have no ability to ultimately bring that about. But God's Word never fails. And what He speaks always accomplishes what He wants it to do. This is what Isaiah 55 verse 10 to 11 says, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. You see, you see why God's peace is so different from the world's peace that just talks about a lack of conflict. God's peace is about wholeness and relationship with Him. Our peace is temporary. God's is eternal. We can wish for it, but only God can bring about His peace. See, biblical peace is so rich because it's effective, it's guaranteed to those who trust in God. And it's about blessing and relationship with God, not just a lack of conflict in your life. Now, when we turn to the New Testament, for example, and look at what it has to say about peace, we see that the New Testament really continues on with what the Old Testament has to say about peace. Now, the Greek word used in our Bibles for peace is the word irene, which means uh, also peace, and it has cognate words that appear about a hundred times, basically, in the New Testament. Irene is uh, what we often use to translate the Hebrew word of shalom, and it's actually where we get the name Irene from. So, Irene, shalom, peace. Now, in the New Testament, we do see an ordinary usage of the word, like in secular context, you know, stuff that simply means, yes, like we understand today, a lack of conflict or peace, no war, no nothing bad going on. But when we think about, again, this continuation of a sense of wholeness or peace that's associated with God and with Christians, there are at least three kinds of peace 
I would say that it's important to us as Christian individuals to see here that exist in the Scripture. The three kinds of peace, I would say, at least are one, the peace with God, two, peace of God, and three, peace with others, okay? Well, I want to go through these one at a time here, okay? Number one, first of all, first, peace with God. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, this is the greatest kind of peace that anyone can ever have in the world. The Bible tells us that in our natural state, we are enemies before God, and that we have no peace with Him because of our sins. But because Jesus Christ came and died on the cross for sinners like us, you and I who choose to believe in him can have our sins forgiven and we are made right with God and restored to a whole relationship with him and we become his children, sons and daughters of a living God who are born again to a living hope, not through our own will but through the will and desire of him who has made us and given us the gospel. He purchased us with his own blood and this is the good news that we call the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news about Jesus, which Paul says in Ephesians 6.15, is the gospel of peace. And this kind of peace is the greatest peace that anyone can have in the world. And it is wholly the gift of a gracious God who has chosen to reconcile his enemies to himself. Right? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19 says, all this is from God who through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not accounting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us, to us, the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, if anyone belongs to Jesus Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. And we are ambassadors of God in this world who bring about a reconciliation to restore people to a sense of true shalom or connectedness and relationship to God. See, this is the kind of peace, peace with God that is absolutely foundational to all other kinds of peace that we read about in the Bible. If we don't have this kind of peace, you can't talk about the other kinds of peace in a meaningful way. You can't have internal peace that lasts if you do not have ultimate peace with God. See, the the second kind of peace here, number two, the peace of God then is what sits on top of peace with God. Look at Colossians 3 verse 15. It says this, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. See, this text here is actually about inner peace in a world that is frightening to us. And God can give this because the Scriptures remind us over and over again that the God we serve is a God of peace. Peace flows from Him. Romans 16.20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan. 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. See, therefore, peace is a characteristic not just of God, but also of His kingdom and for all who belong in His kingdom. 
Romans 14, 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. See, when we are living rightly before God, this is the deep sense of peace that you and I have as Christians. It's the kind of peace that Jesus had as he did the will of God and stood before Pontius Pilate even as he was beaten and, cru- and beaten and mocked and spit upon. And the strange thing was that even though this was him, it was a irate, it was a irate and frightened Pilate who spoke to him and said, Don't you know that I have the authority either to release you or the authority really to crucify you? And Jesus, in perfect peace and calmness, speaks directly to Pilate and says to him, you would have no authority over me except that which has been given to you from above. You see the irony in this situation. One man is about to go and die, and yet he's perfectly at peace. And the other one, who is his persecutor, and has the authority to sentence him, is actually fearful because he's not walking with God. See, this is the kind of peace that Jesus offers to us as his children. The supernatural peace that allows us to stand even though we know we might die for our faith and say, all is well with my soul. I am right with God. I am doing his will. I can walk towards death and eternity with supreme confidence and peace that flows from God himself. I have peace with God and the peace of God reigns in my soul. What do I have to fear? Now, the question for us is, okay, how do we access such peace? How does the peace of God make its way into my soul? Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 to 7, famous words. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgivings, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. In other words, when you're worried, the text says here to bring it all to God. Lay your anxieties before Him because He cares for you. And let the peace of God that surpasses all of your mental understanding come and wash over you and guard you. See, when you're thinking, God, I'm absolutely pushed to the edge. I've got nothing left in the tank. I can't go on. I'm at the end of my rope. The apostle says here, lay it all before the Lord in prayer. And though your intellect might tell you, you should be terrified because there's no possible way in this world that you are going to be helped. Faith and a trust in God says, the cavalry is on the way. God has heard your cries, and you can be rest assured right now. And the peace of God that surpasses your intellectual understanding, the certainty in the sense that your Father will actually come for you and will not let you drown in the midst of this uh, storm, that settles over your soul. And it guards your heart and your mind when everyone in the world is panicking. I love the story told of Brother Andrew. It's known as God's Smuggler. Fantastic book. You should get it and read it. 
He's known for smuggling Bibles illegally into Iron Curtain countries during the height of the Cold War. When he was young, he writes about how at his Christian college, him and a number of his fellow students were sent out on a missions trip with simply a one-pound banknote to cover all of their expenses. They were not permitted to ask anyone else for money, but had to wholly and solely depend on God in faith that he would provide for them all of their ministry needs and also their daily expenses. (laughs) I don't know of colleges today that train their students like this, but really a remarkable thing. He talks about how he and his friends, through prayer and their work, felt led to have an evangelistic meeting and a gathering, and they promised the people that there would be basically tea and cake. The only problem was that they didn't have some of these supplies. Now, they were able to gather some cups and uh, tea or whatever, but they couldn't find any cake, and they didn't have money as well to buy a cake. But they had promised this thing in faith, feeling like God had led them to do this. So, Knowing their needs, they actually took it to the Lord in prayer in the evening, saying, God, you know what we have promised. Please come through for us. Help us even now. We need cake tomorrow for this evangelistic outreach. And so they spend the evening afterwards thinking about different ways that God was going to provide for them. And then the morning comes, and the mailman shows up and delivers the mail, and they rip open the envelopes that are there, and there's no money in them, and they realize they can't actually buy the cake. A lady from a nearby church comes to ask them, hey, do you guys need anything? But knowing that they had made a pact with God saying that, nope, we will go to you solely for our needs, they tell her, even though they had to bite their tongue on this and say, the Father will provide everything that we need, and the lady leaves. Time goes on, and it hits 3 o'clock. The tea is set for 4 p.m. They set the tables, but still no cake. 3.30 comes along, And they end up boiling water for the tea, but still no cake. At 3.45, 15 minutes before their event is about to start, there's a knock on the door, and the postman comes again. And he tells them that basically his deliveries are actually done for the day, but this last package that he had felt like it contained food or something like that and was perishable, so he felt that he needed to go above and beyond and to actually deliver this package to them. And even though the delivery day is over, so they they get this thing and they rip it open. They say, to their amazement and five wondering eyes, they knew already what was in that package. As they opened the lid, inside this box was a marvelous, enormous, glistening, moist chocolate cake that had already been sent in advance. See, this is an incredible story. And you know why? It's because we serve a great and a big God who knows what we need even before we ask. And if we serve such a God and we know Him, do you see why we can have ultimate peace in this world even when our circumstances might dictate to us that we have no reason whatsoever to have peace? We serve a great God who is more than capable of supplying all of our needs in this life, and He has promised to do so as well. God will never abandon you and leave you like an orphan to fend for yourself because we are His children. See, the world cannot give you peace and assurance the way that God offers us as our Father peace and assurance. And as a result of that, we can have From this internal sense of peace and peace with God, peace, the third kind, peace with others. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 to 17 says this, 
For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those of us who were near. In other words, Jesus' work on the cross is the foundation for the cessation of enmity and the beginnings of ultimate world peace between people who would normally be enemies. Because Jesus tore down the wall that exists between Jews and Gentiles and made us into one body, the church that is all family, we have every reason not to be hostile, but to be brothers and sisters who are united as long as we bow our knee to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, Christ died in violence so that you and I could have the gift of everlasting and supreme peace. And this is why we as Christians are commanded to pursue peace. Romans chapter 14, verse 19 says, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Hebrews 12, verse 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see God. 2 Corinthians 13.11 Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. See, the entirety of the Christian life is to be characterized by pursuing peace and is to basically exude peace. That's why when you talk about the fruit of the Spirit, we see that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and goodness. Peace is right up there. Romans 8, verse 6 says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and what? And peace. James 3, verses 17 to 18 says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. In other words, as Christians, we are to be peacemakers who exude peace in our very lives as well. You know, friends and brothers and sisters, those of you who are listening today, as we wrap this up, where is your life at with regards to peace? Do you know the peace of God actually in these three ways? Or is your life right now in turmoil? See, if you're not a Christian here right now today, let me tell you that your greatest need in this life you're listening to this, is actually to have peace with God. Certainly, we all have much to worry about in life. But if you have peace with God, and God is your Father, and you are actually His child, then all the promises of God are available to you. The God who says to you, cast your anxieties on me because I actually care for you, is the God who has also said that the birds of the field are actually fed, and so the lilies are also clothed. And therefore, you who are a child, are you not of much more value than they? Can you not have certainty that the Father will actually clothe and feed you as well? Yes, you can. The question for us is, can you trust Him with that? And do you actually believe that He's trustworthy? And the answer to that question is, He absolutely is. Because our God did not even spare His own Son for us. How much more will He not give us all these things that we need for life? Absolutely, a God who is willing to do that for us can be trusted. 
And God's track record is flawless. His promises never fail. See, Christians, do you grasp the magnitude of your salvation? Do you understand that when you have salvation and trust in Jesus Christ as the bedrock for your life, it has everything else in life makes sense? Do you realize how significant it is that God has saved you and reconciled you so that you're not his enemy anymore? And that because of that, you have every reason to trust him. You know, I love the story that was told of a pastor who was trying to uh, encourage a teenage girl who was struggling, and he, and he gave her the gospel and reminded her of the truths of it. And she responded by saying, I know God loves me and forgives me of my sins, and I have peace with him. But pastor, if you don't have popularity, what do you have? Now we look at this, and we kind of chuckle at the silliness of it, because we know that... Um, Maybe popularity is very, very important in high school as well. But in the life, you know, there's a lot more things that are more important than that. But to a 16-year-old girl or a 15-year-old girl, that might be very, very important. But we as adults really are no different. The heart's the same. We just have different things that we think are so important to us that if we don't have, what do we have in life? People often say things like, if you don't have your health or you lose all your money, what actually do you have? Seriously. As Christians, can we say such a thing? If you don't have your health, what do you have? No, we cannot. See, what is your health compared to the priceless gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ that promises you everlasting life with God? Paul said of all his prestige and the life that he had in Judaism, being at the very top of the totem pole, I counted all as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. You know, the great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones was once asked about the sacrifice that he had made to give up basically 90% of his salary as a doctor to go live as a poor minister preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lloyd-Jones replied to that question about this thing, making a sacrifice, saying, basically, like, imagine this, you know, you have a bank account of like a million dollars, and you were told that you needed a quarter to withdraw from that bank account. Would you say to the person who made a withdrawal from that bank account at the expense of a quarter that he had made a sacrifice? Say, absolutely not. Why? Because of the magnitude of the gift. What is a quarter compared to a million bucks? You'd be crazy to think that I made a huge sacrifice by giving up that quarter that I had to gain a million dollars. See, that's the same thing when it comes to the gospel. The gospel is worth more than a million bucks to us. It's absolutely priceless. And whatever we offer in this life, even if we give up of our very own lives, our health, for the sake of the gospel, our prosperity, what is that? A drop in the bucket compared to the priceless value of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is it not so, brothers and sisters? The question is, do you believe it? If you really believe it, you can joyfully accept even the plundering of your property, the emptying of your bank account on account of your faith in Jesus Christ and have joy in your soul and peace. You know, I remember the hilarious story of a surgeon actually who was briefing a patient about an upcoming leg amputation. But when the patient didn't really seem very concerned about it, the doctor was concerned and says, "Uh, do you understand the nature of the procedure that you're getting? To which the patient nodded and basically said, oh yeah, but it will grow back, right? You know, you you think about it, you go like, how silly can people be? There are true stories that come out of things that doctors have heard people say. Seriously, you, you as a grown adult believe your leg will grow back? 
Maybe if you didn't believe that, you would really have reason to be concerned about how your life is going to look like when you're missing a leg. See, here's my point. As a Christian, I can actually say that even if I lose my leg or something more significant than that, I actually will get it back. Just not here on this earth, but in the new heavens and on the new earth where I will be made whole because of the wholeness of my relationship with God. In other words, if my thoughts are set on seeking His kingdom and His righteousness first, I may lose my house, I may lose my car, I might lose my bank account, I might even lose my children, my wife might even die, or anything else. It might be extremely painful, the type of loss that I go through. I might have a Job-like existence because of my faith or because of whatever happens to me in this life. Yet the truth of the matter is, because I have peace with God, I will one day stand before the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and I will enter into His gates and live with Him forever in a land that is perfect and will never again know sickness, suffering, pain, or death. In that place that He has gone to prepare for me, in which I will be with him and he will be my Lord and we will never be separated from each other forever. See, Christian, what can you possibly lose in this world that compares to the immense value of gain that has been given to us through Jesus Christ? You know, David Livingston, the famous missionary, was exactly right when he said, and was asked about the sacrifices he has made for God. He said, I never made a sacrifice you know, three things, my brothers and sisters and friends who are living. Do you have peace with God? Do you have the peace of God in your life? Can you say, it is well with my soul, even when life is tough? Finally, do you have peace with others? Or do you, are you in conflict? And do you think about how you can repay others evil with evil? See, so long as your thoughts are on how to honor God, uh, uh, honor yourself and not to honor God, you'll always have to fight. You know, brothers and sisters, if you have broken relationships in your life and the reason that you do has something to do with you as well, I would urge you actually to repent. Go and do business with the Father and find peace with God and let the peace of God settle over your soul and then go out and minister peace to others. Insofar as it depends on you, the Bible says, live at peace with others. We are to be peacemakers, bearers of peace. And if a lack of peace has anything to do with us, we should, in all that we are able to do, go and try to make peace. If there are those who have wronged us and hurt you, you are commanded to forgive because your Lord has forgiven you. And can you not forgive in others? Their smaller debt, the debt that is tiny compared to the great debt that God has forgiven you of. Brothers and sisters, I would like to say to us as Christians, really, God has given us a three-piece suit, P-E-A-C-E, three-piece suit to wear as believers. This is what we are to clothe ourselves with each day, remind us it's true. You and I would actually dress properly to be an ambassador if we were representing our country. We wouldn't show up to the UN gathering dressed in shorts and a t-shirt, but we would put on a suit and make ourselves presentable as we carry out the business of our country. In the same way we as Christians are to dress in our best every single day, we are to wear the three-piece suit that God has given us. 
Every day, we will remind ourselves as we wear peace with God, the peace of God, and peace with others. And as people look at us and the way that we present ourselves in the garments that God has given us, let the world realize that we belong to another and that we are not our own. See, Jesus Christ is our ultimate Prince of Peace. And only by knowing Him can we experience the wholeness and the fullness of true shalom or peace and the confidence of what it means to have a three-piece life with Him, a life that is under the absolute divine favor of God. You know, Jesus' words spoken to his disciples were absolutely right. Friends, brothers and sisters, those of you who are listening, do you know this kind of peace that lasts forever? That is our hope and our joy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word and also for the gift of peace. I came to ask God at Christmas 2,000 years ago in the form of a baby. This little gift, oh God, that you sent has changed the lives of millions upon millions, and we are eternally grateful to him. Father, I pray that this Christmas you would help us to think about the great gift of peace that you have given us through this peace child. And I pray, oh God, that you would help us to experience this peace in our lives as we go to you in prayer and to bring our pleas before you, to know that we can trust you and that we can live in perfect peace, oh God, because you provide for us. Father, the cross is proof that we can trust you. And I pray, oh God, that you would help us to believe this every single day of our lives. God, help us to live lives of peace with those who are around us so that the world might know that you are our God. I pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.